Bain. Nice, singing you on occasion one. Amos chapter 8, please. Amos chapter 8. Well, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning that we can come together to spend some time around your word. Lord, we know that your word is your divinely inspired book given unto us, primarily to reveal to us your character, and then to reveal to us, Father God, our relationship with you and how we're to live. We do pray that, Lord, today, as we open up your word in the book of Amos, that you might help us to see in the pages of your word that which you have for us. Lord, that we may understand the, the interpretation of your word and then, Father, may understand the application of that truth to our lives that we might be all that you want us to be. Lord, just pray that you'd guide us this morning. Give us wisdom from on high. Give us understanding of your word. Help me, Father God, I pray, to be your servant, that I might speak only that which you'd have me to speak. And that, Lord, through your word today, we might be challenged, we might leave, knowing that we've been together in your presence, been together in your word, and that we can praise you because you've spoken to us through your truth. Bless our time together now, we pray in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. In chapter 7 of the book of Amos, Amos has a painful encounter with Amaziah, where Amaziah tells him to leave him alone and go away. Basically, stop preaching and go back to the south and preach down there where you might be appreciated. And after his painful encounter with Amaziah, Amos receives some messages here in chapter 8 and chapter 9 from the Lord. You know, it's just like the master to encourage his servants after they've been through tough times. And just in case Amos was wondering whether or not it was worth being a prophet, God now reassures him that he still has a word for him to preach. And here in Amos chapter 8, God speaks to Amos again. And in verses 1 and 2, you read, Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of fruit. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And, so, and I said, A basket of summer fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, The end is come. Upon all, pe all, pe all my people, Israel, I will not again pass by them anymore. God speaks to him again. God often used common objects to teach important spiritual lessons to his people. Objects uh, that he uses, object lessons, if you like. Objects like pottery in Jeremiah 18 and 19, a seed in Luke chapter 8, yeast in Matthew chapter 16. And here in our text, he uses a basket of summer fruit, a basket of ripe fruit, as his object lesson for Israel. And just as this fruit was ripe for eating, the nation of Israel was ripe for judgment. See, there comes a time when God's long-suffering runs out and judgment is decreed. The end is coming says there in verse 2, the end is come. In this chapter, we, come, we see, can see some similarities between Israel's situation and our world today. You know, as far as our world is concerned today, judgment and the perspective of God, judgment 
is coming. There will be a bitter harvest for the unsaved. The end is coming. And two questions need to be asked with regards to that statement, the end is coming. First of all, why the end is coming in Amos chapter 8, 1 through 6, and how the end is coming in Amos chapter 8, verses 7 to 14, why it's coming and, when, and how it's coming. Today we're going to consider the first of these, why the end is coming, and next week we'll see the second of these, how the end is coming. Amos chapter 8, verse 1 and 6 is where we're going to concentrate our time today and ask the question why the end is coming. The simple answer to that question is this. The reason why the end is coming is because of sin. Israel broken God's law and they'd failed to live up to his covenant. And the day of judgment was coming just as God promised it would come if they did not obey him. The judgment would come just as shortly as he, his promises came fulfilled. This promise would be fulfilled that because of their sin, they would be judged. The end is come. And the day of judgment is coming for our world also for the same reason. The reason why this world is on a collision course with judgment is because of sin. And Israel and the world are simply like a basket of ripe fruit. A basket of summer fruit. The description of Israel is just as clearly a description of our world today as it is a description of Israel in Amos' day. And I want you to notice me, first of all, today, the rotting and the corruption in Israel in verses 1 through 3. The rotting and the corruption in Israel in verses 1 through 3. As we said, Israel is likened here to a basket of summer fruit. In verse 1, Thus hath the Lord thy uh, Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And in verse 2, And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. So the Lord comes and shows him this basket of summer fruit. And what he sees is, just as this fruit was ripe, and therefore, because it's ripe and it's ready for eating, it's, just, it's not going to last very long. It's going rotten. That's the image here. But you have fruit that's the end of its days, the end of its life, and it's starting to rot. And just as time is short for the summer fruits, so the time for Israel was short. The end has come. Now, in the original Hebrew, the prophet's words here in this verse 2 are more emphatic. Because what the prophet does is he uses, what God does to the prophet, he uses a play on words to explain uh, the situation here. Now, it's difficult to communicate the play on words in English. That's why we don't see it very clearly in English. For the Hebrew word translated summer in verse 1 and in verse 2 is, this, is a similar word to that used in verse 2 to translate it end. So we read that in verse 2, and he said, Amos, what seest thou? And he said, I see a basket of summer or of ripe fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, the end is come. Now that word summer and the word end are similar words to each other. And so there's a play on words to emphasize the point here. What the Lord is saying is he's saying, the end of the harvest is here. 
Just as the end of the harvest of farmers would come and they would know that the end is coming because the, root, the fruit is starting to rot and therefore there's not much time left to, to get what's left of your fruit before it finally uh, rots away. The end is near because the fruit is going rotten. And so the end is near for Israel. The harvest is about, of judgment is about to fall upon them because they are just like a basket of fruit, summer fruit that is ripe to the place whereby it's the end of its days. It's about ready to be thrown out. You know, you've had that fruit sitting in the bowl for a while and now all you see, you start to see it turning a little bit brown and you realize now is the time to get rid of it. Of course, that's the time when you... not thinking about bananas here because I know that's when you make them into banana cake. I'm thinking about apples and things like that. Those kind of fruit that you wouldn't want to eat when they start to go brown. Okay, just in case you were thinking like, I was just there for a moment of a banana. Uh, I thought I'd better explain that. It's the fruit that you wouldn't eat when it starts to go rotten. As it starts to rot in the bowl, you think to yourself, that's it, it's finished, it's got to go in the bin. That's Israel. It's the end of the fruit, it's the end of the time, it's the end of God's patience. Israel is like a rotten bowl of fruits. And they're about ready to be cast out. The end has come upon my people Israel. He says at the end of verse 2, I will not pass again by them anymore. They're like ripe fruit. Judgment is about to fall upon rotten Israel. And God is not going to pass by there anymore. God's patience is ended. And here we see the Lord says to them, I will not forgive you anymore. I've been patient with you. I've been tolerant with you. But I will not pass by them anymore. It's over. The end is come. Time has run out for the nation Israel. And you know, time for our world is fast running out. Judgment must fall. And you and I, as we look around our world, have to believe in our heart of hearts that time is getting very short before that judgment must fall. The world is getting increasingly wicked and it's hard for us to believe that God's judgment can be very far away. Judgment will come. And it must fall. And when it does, it will be too late. That's why the Bible tells the day is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Christ said in John chapter 9 and verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. The night is coming. You and I need to work while there's day because the night is coming. Judgment is pending and it's increasingly getting closer by each day that passes. Romans 13, 12 says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Beloved, there's a challenge here to you and I in the words of Amos. We need to work for the Lord today while there's opportunity. For the day is far spent and the night is fast approaching. 
There is a time coming when no one will work. There will be no opportunity for you and I to witness. Jesus Christ will come again. You and I will be raptured and it will be too late. Judgment is coming. The end is coming. And there's an urgency required by you and I as believers. Notice what he says in verse eight, uh, verse 3 of chapter 8. And the songs of the temple shall be howling in that day, saith the Lord God. And there shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth with silence. Here it describes what it's going to be like when the end has come, when the judgment finally falls upon the nation of Israel. He says the songs of the temple will become funeral dirges. Instead of be rejoicing and singing a joy within the temple, there will be mourning. And this will be accompanied by weeping and wailing, and corpses will be thrown everywhere and not given a proper burial. It would be a bitter harvest for Israel as a nation reaps what it sowed. The song of the temple shall be howlings in that day, saith the Lord God. There shall be many dead bodies in every place, and they shall cast them forth with silence. They'll just cast them out. They won't be able to bury them. There'll be no, so many dead. People would be so overwhelmed that they would be unable to discuss the tragedy. Silence would reign in the land. The judgment is going to fall upon Israel. That phrase at the end of verse 3, where it says, They shall cast them forth with silence, is more forceful in the Hebrew. For the Hebrew says, Many corpses in every place he hath cast them forth. Hush. Hush. The Lord is represented here as casting dead bodies to the ground. This is God's judgment falling upon God's people for their disobedience. And God casts them out. Death is everywhere. And there's the interjection at the end of that statement where it says, many corpses in every place he hath cast them forth. And then he interjects, hush. And the interjection here, hush, is an admonition to bend beneath the hand of an avenging God. God is saying to Israel, listen, it's time for you to stop talking. It's time for you to listen. It's time for you to hush. And realize that this is my judgment upon you. And it's time for you to turn back to your God. Hush. And our world is truly like this. It is rotten, it is like rotten fruit. And it seems to you and I, or at least it seems to me, and I assume it seems to you, it seems to us that it can't be long before it's thrown out, before God judges this world, before the tribulation period falls upon the earth where the wrath of God is poured out, where the grapes of the wrath of God are poured out upon mankind and one-third of the population is slain and one-third of the stars of heaven fall and one-third of the vegetation is destroyed and one-third of the sea life is destroyed and the world is under, under the judgment of a mighty God. That day doesn't seem so far away. 
And God would say to our world, Hush! Listen. Judgment is coming. Turn to your God. Because the only answer for our world is God. Our world needs to listen before it's too late. Jeremiah 28 says the harvest is past. The summer is ended and we are not saved. That's our world, isn't it? The harvest is ripe. It seems like our world is just simply a basket of summer fruit. It's rotting before our very eyes. And yet, they're not saved. Trouble is on every side. Death and destruction are in the news every day. It seems like almost every week, if not every few days, there is a terrorist attack somewhere. It was France yesterday. Today it was in Afghanistan. 120 Afghani soldiers were, were slaughtered by two uh, uh, Taliban's acting as Afghani soldiers. They walked into, four, sorry, walked into the barracks. Two set off uh, uh, suicide bombs. Two took out machine guns and shot them. 120 Afghanis dead. Paris the day before. London a couple of weeks ago. And so it goes on. It just seems like every day there is tragedy. The world is a mess. It seems like it'll only be time before free speech is gone. And we as believers be told to be quiet. I mean, you've been listening lately to you know all the discussion about the free speech, etc. Yes, you're allowed to have free speech so long as you agree with those who are on the left. But if you want to stand up for Christianity, then you're supposed to be quiet. We've had ministers arrested in, in Victoria for speaking out against uh, 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 Islam. And you've had a, a, a priest, a Catholic priest in Tasmania, was arrested for uh, standing up against the fact that uh, in church he, he, he talked against uh, homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And if, the, if, the, if those who are in the secular society have their way in our nation in which we live, you and I as believers would be silenced. And everything's getting more and more militant out there against Christianity and against those things that we hold dear, against the very principles of God's word. Now there's ads on TV wanting people to wear a ring until there is equal, equality in marriage. That would never have happened a few years ago. We're living at the end of time. I don't know when the Lord's going to come. It may be today. It may be 10 years from now. Maybe 100 years from now. I think what the world will be like 100 years from now, if that's the case. But I don't know when it will be, but I do know this. The, the time of judgment is coming, and God wants the people of the world to hush and listen, for he's the only answer to their needs. Time is running out. Judgment is coming. 
There's an urgency required to get the message out. Our world and our nation increasingly becoming like a basket of summer or ripe fruit. And only Christ can save sinners. We need to take every opportunity. We need to pray that God will give you and I opportunity to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to those that we work with, to those that we neighbor, to those that we meet in the street, to those in our family, that God would give you and I opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, for he is the only answer to our world's need. The day of salvation has nearly ended. The night is fast approaching. We need to work while it's day. The Lord goes on now to describe the condition of the nation, but not only showing the rotting and the corruption in Israel, but he also describes the dishonesty and the cheating of the poor in Israel. Look in verse 4. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land fall. We find here that, secondly, the dishonesty and the cheating of the poor. Here the Lord shows how they have broken his law, especially the Ten Commandments. You know, the first table of the Ten Commandments, the first five commandments, are to do with our relationship with God. The second five commandments are to do with our relationship with each other. And Israel rebelled against both these, against their relationship with God and their relationship with each other. They did not love God and they did not love their neighbor. Remember in Matthew 22, this is what the Lord did. He condensed the law into two things. When they asked him what is the greatest commandment, he said that the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. He is the Ten Commandments. Love God and love thy neighbor. And Israel had broken both these, loving God and loving their neighbor. And here in Amos, the Lord explains how they've broken both these laws. And he starts with the second table of the commandment, loving their neighbor. Because what they've done is they've trampled on the poor and the needy and robbed them of the little they possess. Look in verse 4 and 5 again. Look in verse 4 again. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land fail. They swallow up the needy. The prophet is showing us the depths of their iniquities, which they will not cast away. He shows that they're right for judgment because what they do is they're ripping off the poor and the needy. The very little they have, they're ripping that off them. The phrase that swallow up there in verse um, 4, hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy. The word swallow up is to pant after. It's like a beast panting after its prey, eager to devour it. Go back to Amos chapter 2, please. Amos chapter 2 and verses 6 and 7 because the same word is translated that way. Verse 6, Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and four. I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they sold the righteous for silver, the poor for a pair of shoes, that pant, same Greek Hebrew word, that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the, the way of the meek 
and the man and his father will go into unto it the same maid profane my holy name they pant after they swallow up they're eager to devour just like a, a, a wild animal is seeking to devour its prey they're seeking to devour up the poor and the needy even to make the poor of the land fail it says in verse 4 they grasp at the property of the unresisting poor adding field to field and impoverishing the poor more and more and more as they keep on devouring their land devouring what they have impoverishing them in various ways to get the land from them so that the poor become increasingly poor and the rich become increasingly rich in Amos chapter 8 and verse 5 and 6 Israel we're told kept the new moon and the Sabbath day says in verse 5 saying when will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat making the ephah small and the shekel great and the falsifying of the balances by deceit that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes yea and sell the refuge of the wheat now here we find that Israel kept the new moon they kept the Sabbath but only outwardly they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof, as 2 Timothy 3.5 tells us. In verse 5, where it talks about the new moon, when will the new moon be gone? The new moon here is the first day of the month, or the first day of the new moon, which was the first day of the Jewish month because they had a lunar calendar, not like us who have a solar calendar. They had a lunar calendar. Okay, The first day of the month was the new moon, and the first day of the month was a holiday in which all trade was to be suspended. And these greedy sinners kept the festivals and went and kept the holiday, the new moon, but they begrudged the fact that they had to give themselves to that and they couldn't work. And they considered a waste of time. When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn? So they took the public holiday, they took the holiday, the monthly holiday, but they begrudged it because they would rather be selling corn on that day and meant one less day in which they could make money. They kept the Sabbath. It says in verse 5, and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheats. So they kept the Sabbath, but they added to the deception was the desecration of the Sabbath and the holy days. The worship of God interrupted their business and they didn't like it. They didn't like the public holiday once a month for the new moon. That was a pain because it meant one less day that they got to make money. And they certainly hated the Sabbath day because that was a day every week that they got to miss out on making money. And Nehemiah had to contain in upholding the sanctity of the Sabbath the same way in Nehemiah chapter 10 and Nehemiah chapter 13. And Amos describes the same problem here. And you might expect Gentile merchants to ignore holy days. You'd expect the unsaved, you'd expect the Gentiles not to care about the Jewish holy days, but you certainly don't expect the Jewish merchants to not to want to keep the holy days. The phrase may set forth in verse 5 where it says, 
and the Sabbath day that we may set forth wheats. The phrase may set forth literally means open. The word expresses the opening of the granaries and the storehouses. They wanted to open their shops on the Sabbath. The Sabbath day had been set aside by Almighty God as a day of worship. As he had created the world in six days, on the seventh day rested, he then established the seventh day as the day of rest, and every Jewish person was to set on the Sabbath day was to rest. The day was set aside solely for the purpose of worship. But these Jewish rich people, these businessmen in Israel, found that the Sabbath day interfered with their merchandise, with their shops, and they wanted to open, open their shops on the Sabbath day. They want to set aside the day of worship. Sound familiar? Sunday trading. You know, I remember when I, when I was young, church, uh, shops never opened on Sunday. Not even the corner store opened on Sunday when I was young. If you wanted to make sure you had enough on Sunday, you had to do your shopping Saturday because Sunday they weren't going to be open. Nobody played sports on Sunday. There was no professional sports on Sunday. You couldn't watch the NRL, the AFL, the, the uh, uh, soccer. You couldn't watch any sport on a Sunday. You could not even go down the local park and watch a, a game of your local club play on Sunday. You couldn't go to the shops on Sunday. Sunday was set aside as a holiday, and the intent of that day was that people went to church. It was a day set aside for worship. Now, some people wrongly called it the Sabbath, but the intent was the same. The intent was that we took off the first day of the week. It was set aside for the purpose of you and I being able to worship God. But increasingly in our society, we've seen the secularization of the Sunday and the commercialization of the Sunday. And now there's Sunday trading. And if it was left to the traders, to the businessmen, they would be trading 365 days a year. And there would be no special days which were set aside for anything other than shopping because it's inconvenient for them to give their staff a day off and not be making money on that day. Sounds like Israel, doesn't it? In Amos chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, when they did business, the merchants used inaccurate measures so they could rob their customers. Notice what it says at the end of verse 5. It says, making the ephah small and the shekel great and the falsifying the balances by deceit. Now, the ephah, to explain this to you, the ephah is the measure by which corn is measured. Okay, so if you wanted to buy some corn, you would buy an ephah of corn. Now, I'm not actually sure how big an ephah is. I didn't even think to look that up. But anyway, you can do that yourself. But if you wanted to buy corn, you would buy it by the ephah. Okay, that was the weight you would use. We buy it by the kilo or by the gram or by whatever the case might be. They bought it by the ephah, okay? And so they would get the corn. Now, what they did was they made this small, so they gave less for what you paid for, okay? So if it was supposed to be 500 kilograms or whatever it might be, they would give you 450. They would make it small. They would say it was the same weight, but they would make it small. 
So the ephah is small, so you got less than what you paid for. The shekel here in verse 5 was the weight by which the money was weighed. This they made great, so they made the shekel heavier. So they gain, uh, so this gained too high a price for the quantity of corn. So you've been reduced in the size you got. You then put on the scales, and because the weights are heavy, they weigh so that they look like it's right. You're getting the right weight for what you're paying for. And to increase their gains, they falsified the scales and used fraudulent weights. Thus they cheated the poor probably in three ways. By small measure, exorbitant price, and light weight. You just didn't get what you paid for. Now the Lord demanded that they use accurate weights and measures in Leviticus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy 25. Go back with me to Leviticus 19, please. Leviticus 19. This was the law of God with regards to weights and measures. Leviticus 19 and verse 35. You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment, in meat in weight, in measure. Just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin shall he have. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. They would have just weights and measures. But they cared only for making as much money, as much as they could, out of what they sold. Therefore, they reached the size of what you got, Increase the weight of what was weighed with and charge you exorbitant prices. You could not win. You didn't get what you paid for. Poor were unable to pay the necessities of life. And because they couldn't pay, because they couldn't buy the necessities of life, they had to sell themselves into slavery, into servitude, so they could survive. So now they became the slaves of the poor to get some food. The merchants would have them arrested for a little offense as the inability to pay for a pair of shoes, verse 6. That we may buy the poor for silver, the needy for a pair of shoes. You couldn't pay for a pair of shoes, you would have to go into servitude to pay for them. So they were treating these evil vendors would not only alter the weather measures and inflate their prices, but they would also cheapen their products. And they did this by adding, adding the sweepings or mixing the sweepings of the threshing room floor with the grain. Look at the end of verse 6. And sell the refuge of the wheat. So you would go in to buy your wheat, and they would reduce the size of the quantity, they would increase the weight by which it was judged, they would charge you inflated prices, but also they would take the wheat and they would take the sweeping of the floor and they would have the sweepings of the floor in with your wheat and you would get wheat plus refuge. All because they wanted to make more money. First Peter First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says, The love of money is the root of all evil. It's true, isn't it? 
Here is the very core of the problem. It is the mighty dollar is driving these people to be so dishonest and treat the poor in the land with such disdain. The truth is they had a religion without righteousness. They kept the holy day but didn't like the idea they had their staff a day off because it meant a day they couldn't make money. They kept the Sabbath day but they didn't like it because they meant they had another day off they couldn't make money. They treated the poor with disdain all because they wanted to make money. They had, they had right. They had religion without righteousness. And so while outwardly they kept the holy days and the Sabbath day, they rejected the special days appointed by God in their hearts. They couldn't wait till they were over. That sounds like a world today. You know, the world will celebrate Christmas. They'll celebrate Easter. They'll take a holiday. But increasingly, we see the commercialization of these days. I mean, Good Friday now is no longer a particularly special day. It's now a day for all forms of football to be played. The NRL led the charge and the AFL have started doing it this year. I was listening to the head of the AFL talk about that. He said, we've always not played a game on Good Friday because that is, a, that is the day for Christians to get together, to go to church, to celebrate the death of Jesus Christ. Always kept that, uh, kept a, a mind on that as we've set our scheduling for the year and we've refused over the years, even though the NRL went to playing on Good Friday, we refused to do it till this year because now we realize that, that this country is not as Christian as it used to be and it won't offend as many as it would have done. And why do they do it? Because they can make money. So we have the commercialization of these days. And folks, as we look at our world, you know, a lot of this stuff just, just happens around us, doesn't it? And we don't, we don't take notice of it because it's, particularly now, things are happening at such a fast pace. You know, it used to be that these were big events. You know, these were big things because they didn't happen quickly. They, they would take a long time and you would see them coming. And when they happened, it was a big thing. And Christians had opportunity to take a breath and to take a stand. These days, it happens so quickly around us. We see them flying on by and we just can't keep track of all the changes that are happening around us but the world is becoming increasingly more and more a secular world and the society in which we live in today in Australia is a secular society a humanistic society it has a religion but it doesn't have righteousness the religion is this planet. The religion is is uh, is uh, the trees. The religion is the 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 uh, you know the coal in the ground. The religion is the gas in the ground. The religion is all these things, and they have a religion, whether they call it religion or not. But they do have a religion, but they don't have righteousness. And there's a need more than ever for us as believers to have temporary testimony in our business dealing, our personal lives. In this wicked world full of sin and corruption, more than ever, beloved, we need to shine lights to the glory of God. Beloved, the end is coming. Time is short. And Christ is the only answer to our world and to our nation's needs. 
And we need to stand up like Amos for the Lord. The end is coming. Next time we'll see how the end is coming. But the challenge for us today amid our wicked world and amid this basket of summer fruits is for us, as the songwriter said, to stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, his army shall he lead till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. Beloved, the end is coming. Must stand up for Jesus, faithfully proclaiming the gospel like Amos did of old and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ till Jesus comes again. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this powerful reminder that the end is coming. Lord, as we look at our world that we see in Amos, we see our world so well pictured. As you describe your people, the nation of Israel, that secular northern kingdom, that human northern kingdom, we see it reflected so well in our world today. Lord, like Amos, help us to be bold, to stand up for Jesus in the midst of a wicked generation. Lord God, help us to have opportunity to share the gospel. Soften the hearts of those that we know. We might share God's truth with them to your glory. Bless now as we close the hymn, we pray in Jesus' name.